And welcome everyone to Pushing Rubber Podcast, episode 78. This is the podcast of Adam Piggott. You can check out my website, pushingrubberdownhill.com. You can buy my books, Pushing Rubber Downhill, Run Guts, Pull Cones, on all... You can get them on all internet platforms. You can get them at your local bookstore. You can get them milking a cow. Matter of fact, I've got one now. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in. Um, Coming to you from rainy afternoon Holland. Uh, Spring has sprung. And uh, yeah, just got out of day in the swimming pool, in the helicopter module, putting people upside down all day. Nice day. Some people were very nervous. One guy in particular, the last time he'd done the course four years ago in a different part of the world, the harness had failed and they had to cut him out with a knife. So he was understandably nervous. He was understandably nervous. And uh, I was happy to say I got him through with no repeats. He didn't have to repeat any drills. Calmed him down. Got him to focus on what he needed to do, not what he was scared of. He was pretty ecstatic. Gave me a 500 euro tip. Nah, I didn't do that. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, we don't get tipped here in Europe to rescue people from helicopter modules. Um, but it was good. It was a good day. Some other guys were pretty nervous. Had an on swimmer who was shitting himself. Yeah, fine. No repeats. It's nice. It's nice. It's satisfying. It's satisfying. I like being satisfied in many ways. Um, you guys are all listening to me. That's satisfying, but I don't get the, I don't get the, you know, the feedback from that sort of stuff. So this is nice to be out there and doing stuff again. And I got paid today. I got my first paycheck. It's my first paycheck in two years, uh, and it was bigger than I thought it was going to be. They didn't take as much tax out of it. Thank you, Dutch government. Yeah. Apparently, the the Dutch. I found out the Dutch had raised their taxes to cover the, the global financial crisis shit, and then. Apparently the, the new government just went, all right, that's over. We'll take them back to what it was. How about that? Because most of the time, the vast majority of the time, if a government goes, this is a temporary tax, that means for the next 500 years. This personal income tax was a temporary tax levy to fund the First World War. But you didn't know that. Americans thought of it first, and they were only in the war for about a year. Pussies. Um... Yeah, they bought in personal income tax, and other countries went, oh, that's a good idea, yeah, we'll do that. And then all this money started rolling in, the government's like, oh, this is fun. Wow, what can we do with all this? And that became permanent. Um, so, um, yeah, got paid, it's nice. Nice, 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 nice to get paid. Um, of course, I've had lots of savings, and oh, I've sold quite a few books, but that's been good as well. But uh, the paycheck coming in after a... Uh, a month of um, some effort, getting up at five in the morning, going to work. Um, it's nice. It's a nice thing. Um, and I've been, I've been um, comparing. Well, I, I didn't know I was going to get the notice today. Oh, you've been paid. Logged on. I could see what it was. I looked at the amount of money and I was like, shit. Because I thought back to my rafting days. And you have to understand that the, in, in Italy which is being paid in euros as well. So the last rafting season I did there was 2010. And you have to understand that the guides in Italy are still being paid the same amount today, effectively, 
oh, literally, that they were paid when I first started there in the year 2000. It hasn't gone up at all. And uh, I had... Um, So I looked at I looked at the money that I've got now for this month, and I've kind of compared it. The money that I've got now after tax, I would have had to have worked every day on the river from dawn to dusk. Like I'd have thirty days, like Monday to Sunday, to be able to get close to that number. Hang on a sec. cat being very naughty and he's chosen this moment in particular because he knew i was about to record a podcast anyway yeah i would have had to put off just it now just working monday to friday having weekends off i would have had to have busted my ass for 30 days in a row in august five trips a day and i still wouldn't have i don't think i still would have hit this number um and i got i got i got I got asked by someone when I was in Italy, I said, they, in January on the skiing holiday, they were like, and, and in January in Italy in the skiing holiday, I didn't have this job lined up. I hadn't even started looking. And they were like, oh, do you want to come across and do the rafting season for us for five months? And they threw a figure at me and I just looked at them and went, I'm not even getting out of bed in the morning for that number anymore. And they said, we'll increase it by 20%. And I just said, you're so far, so far out of the ballpark. It's not funny. And this is not a reflection on cheapness of rafting companies. This is a reflection of how stuffed Italy's economy is. Uh, they are in real trouble. Speaking of that, speaking of Italy, I mean, we had the election. Uh, it's pretty close to a month ago now. Italian election results. Let me just... Uh, election 2018... Results, because I don't think they've announced a prime minister yet. Let's have a look. Um, and I, um, I picked uh, Matteo Salvini from the the Northern League to win, uh, to get elected prime minister. Um, and he's got, when they worked out the percentages of popular vote and everything, no one else picked him, man. No one else picked him. He's out in front with 37%. Luigi Di Maio of the Far Star Movement, second and 32.7. And Matteo Renzi in the center-left coalition is back at 22.9. So, Matteo Salvini... Um, have they, it's a hung parliament and they haven't, they're still negotiating at the moment. Um, and well, it took, it took, um, it took the Dutch, I think seven months to get to a, um, to get to a uh, an agreement. I don't know if the Italians are going to take that long because the Italians don't have as many political parties as the Dutch do. The, the Dutch, I thought Italian politics with a number of parties running was, 
was crazy, but the Dutch take it to another level indeed. So I don't think, but I'm really, I'm really, like it was a big call for me to make Matteo Salvini of the Northern League, which is, which is far right. Anti-immigrants, uh, they basically want to split the northern part of Italy away from the rest of Italy and give the rest of Italy the big finger. <laughs> so for me to call Matteo Salvini as the uh, potential winner of the, of the election, or not winner, but become prime minister, that was a big call. Well, he's front runner now, man. I really hope this comes off. Uh, not just for me looking golden, because I'll, I will have picked Trump, Brexit, the Italian referendum, uh, and now the Italian election. I, that's just, that's, that's, uh, I'm, I'll be pretty happy with that. But because it'll see some real needed change coming to Italy. Italy's in, yeah, Italy's in some strife. Um, Italy's, Italy's, Italy's economy, well, the wages haven't increased in the 21st century. Unless you work for the public service. If you work for the government, your wages have increased. you work privately, you haven't. I think the average wage in Italy, if you're a worker in a factory or something, is something like 800 euros a month or 900 euros a month, something like that, which is absolutely insanely crazily nothing. Uh, the euro's been very bad, as the currency's been very, very bad for Italy. Um, and it basically halved... Because I was there when they introduced the euro. So the first couple of years I was with the lira. And the euro basically halved your spending power uh, overnight um, for the way that it happened. It was, it was terribly, terribly. The, basically, if a beer at a pub was 2,000 lira, um, when the euro came in and they did the differences... That beer should have been one euro. What they did was they just made it two euro. They just took off the zeros and stuck a euro sign in front, instead of a lira sign in front. But when it came to working out your wage, suddenly they were very, everyone was very, very precise, as precise as you could be. So literally overnight, your spending power halved. And my first two seasons in, in Italy with the lira, that was good money, man, back then. That was really good money. I think I made something like for a five-month rafting season, I think I made around 12 or 13 uh, million lira, which is around twelve or $13,000. That was, that was back then. That was, that was for rafting. Like that was really good money. And considering I was coming from the Nile where I was earning around about 100 bucks a week, um, so to earn around 13 grand in, in, in five months was, um, was a huge step up. Um, for the time, that was good. For the time, that was really, really good. It wasn't even five months, was it? Hang on. Four months. That was four months. 13 grand in four months. Um, and now they're offering... It's a bit more than 13 grand, I think. Anyway, now for a five-month season, I'm being offered 10,000 euros. It's just like, and that's before that's before tax, <laughs> and you got to work every day, man. Every day of the every day of the week. Um, that's it's just I just I just looked at it and I went, I'm sorry, man, but the, I I know Italy's in a lot of trouble, but the rest of the world's moved on. And um, the guy's a good friend of mine, good friend of mine. I've known him for well since I started rafting in Italy in the year 2000. That's when I first met him. Really good guy. He's got his own company. He said, Do you reckon there's any 
any guides over in Holland that would be interested? I just went, nah, <laughs> not for that money, man. No way. Not in a million years. There's no one. There's no one who'd be interested in that money. Not anyone with some skills. So, um, yeah, Italy's, Italy's in real trouble. Um, and I really hope that um, Silvani gets the... Um, gets the... Gets the Prime Minister shit there. It'll be really good. Here's hoping. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Not just for my prediction. <laughs> Success. Well, for that, too. <laughs> Quite a bit for that. Um, did a article yesterday, Do You Need to Be Poor to Succeed, it was based on the video request Aaron Clary got from uh, someone from his consultancy business the question of whether or not a father should provide his teenage son with a monthly stipend um, a father wants to know five to seven hundred and fifty dollars per month will spoil his 15 year old son uh cappy believes so but his son's potential physical and mental impairments may make this a moot point um cappy did the, the video i thought it was a good video and then i received an email from the guy who uh, approached Cappy for the email, and um, I've had email contact with this guy before. Uh, he lives in um, he lives in Europe, and um, he sent me this email, and he just said, "I'll just I'll just read it out here if you haven't read the article." For someone who takes his writing skills way too seriously, I I made two enormous mistakes as regards to, in the sense of when he sent the the video request to Cappy. I described some of the problems my son has and I threw out a number. This sidetracked the discussion. What I meant to emphasise was to have been was whether Aaron Cleary himself needed to have been as poor as he was or whether he would have appreciated the help and still have become the person he is. From my memory of your book, which is Pushing Rubber Downhill, uh, Journey to Manhood via Whitewater Adventures, you came to Cairns with $100. True story. I guess what I'm asking is, did you need to be desperately poor to galvanise your thinking actions? Part of me says yes, only a desperate person will make meaningful changes. On the other hand, how utterly soul-destroying it is to lie in bed, wondering how you're going to pay the bills. I want my boy to appreciate things and not have to go to bed hungry. Okay. There's so much in this. And this is the topic of the discussion today, uh, which is, should the journey be hard? Um, If your journey's easy... As an individual, you're going to be soft. If your journey is difficult, as an individual, you're going to be tougher. That's the reality. That's what I've seen out there in the last 30 years of the people I've known, people I went to school with, my peers. Um, if you take risks and they don't pay off, or that you take risks and they do pay off, um, or do you just do the mediocre life, life of a sheep, Go along. First of all, a hundred arriving to Cairns, as I said in my post, arriving in Cairns hundred dollars is not poor. I've never been poor. I come from an upper middle class background. My father was an engineer. Uh, my mother's a teacher. Um, Cappy was never poor. What I know of Cappy, no, I know Cappy was never poor because of his mindset and how he is as an individual. I, I just know how, how he was brought up. Look, 
Poor poverty is about is not a lack of money. This is really important to understand. Poverty is a lack of options. Poor people don't have options. They've got no money and they've got no way to get out of that situation. Okay. Um, it could be that broken home. They're born into poverty, born into people with no money, broken home, desperate poverty. Uh, abusive households they start maybe they've got a criminal record it's just a vicious vicious cycle that once you're in that loop it's just so hard to break out of really really hard to break out it's possible to break out of it and of course there are plenty of of fantastic and wonderful and inspiring examples of people breaking out of it but it is really hard to break out and and that that's what poverty is and it's really important under that a lack of options defines poverty you're you've got no money or you're very little money and there's there's no there's no obvious way how you're ever going to change that situation and it and it, and it can be and it can be locked in your mindset like you can be living in a in a in a small town like i hear about the small town the working class whites in america and the small town and they're being decimated by um pain pain killing drugs opioids all that sort of stuff you can look at it and go, well, why don't you just, you're a young person, why don't you just leave that town, strike out, do the Aaron Clary reconnaissance man style thing. But if you don't even, it ever, if the idea never even enters your head that that's a possibility, or it's been drummed into, into your head that you're a loser, and if you did that, everyone would laugh at you and rah, 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 who do you think you are, just stay who you are. Don't try to change yourself. Rah, 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 rah. You just get locked in it. It's just not. A, it's not an option for you because of all of those things pressing down on you. So for me in that situation, it'd be like, all right, I ain't having it in this town, and everyone's drug addicted, and if I stay here, it's going to be really bad. See ya. Poor people just don't have that as an option because it doesn't enter their head, and it's it's really look the big trap for people. Um, when we're talking about giving advice, writing about the stuff that I write about and other commentators write about in the same, in the manosphere, for example, or even just in the alt-right or the alt-shite, um, there's a real trap. You've got to, you can't, you can't, you, you've got to use your personal circumstances as, as what I have to do. I have to use my personal circumstances as a frame in order to give my spin or my take on a situation. But what I can never do is fall in the, into the trap of N equals 1, which is my life is this and that's what it does is for everyone else. You've really got to put yourself out in the general view of what's going on and put your mind, empathise and put your mindset into where, in this case, people locked in a poverty are it's like it's like saying to someone who's bulimic or just don't put stick your fingers down your throat well yes okay for if if you're not bulimic that's pretty fucking good advice but to bulimic people that's not really going to work out and it's the same with poverty this is actually this is the mistake that stefan molyneux made on that video that i ended up crucifying on and i got so much blowback Especially that first comment, Stefan 
fell into the trap of N equals 1. What he finds attractive in a woman, which is a woman who's going to stimulate him intellectually, emotionally, and fascinate him, blah, 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 blah. He made the mistake of going N equals 1, which is he projected that on into his general advice. And that is wrong. And that's why he got so crucified. You can't fall into the trap as a commentator. And we see it not just as a commentator. The argument I have with the woman who was a guest at my house three or four weeks, two or three weeks ago, who I had the argument, I wrote the post, I wrote, ended up writing the article based on it about a week ago about, and it was like, women, we're not attracted to your job and your money and your career and all the rest of it and your college degree. It's not going to get you laid. Yeah. When I was having that argument with her, she kept going back. Her, her attempt to discredit my argument, to argue against me, was simply to give examples for her from her own life. You see it all the time. N equals one, N equals one. And I actually said it to her when we were arguing. I said, N doesn't equal one. I don't care what your personal circumstances are. This is why myself, when I give out advice, I very rarely talk about my family, what's going on, blah, 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 blah. If, if as in a concrete, concrete example, because I've got to look at it dispassionately and go, okay, well, this is what's happening with me, but my circumstances and me as a person is pretty unique, especially with what I've done and where I am with my mindset, because I'm pretty well in front of most people out there that I've ever come into contact with. So I can't then... I can't then project that mindset onto the world at large and expect everyone else to live up to this. I And that's the N equal one trap. I've got to look at it dispassionately. In this case, in the poverty, okay, if people are locked into a poverty cycle, you've got to look at, you've got to look at why that's the case. And like I said, if I was in a small town in depressed, working-class, white, Appalachian wherever the shitholes of the East Coast in, I don't know, is it New Jersey? Is it some of this? Where is this? Pennsylvania? I don't know. I've never been to the US. I don't know. But I can't just project myself into that situation, what I do. Well, I'll just leave town. I'll just leave town and I won't, I won't become a methadone addict. Well, yeah, okay. Mm, fine. But that's, that's not helping. So, back to the topic at hand. True poverty, as I wrote yesterday, is the absence of options. That's what poverty is. Having no money, that's fine. And look, everyone has to start from somewhere. Let's say you turn 18, you never had a job while you're at school, you never got pocket money, so you're starting from zero, okay? And you need to strike out on your own. At that point, dad... Can I have a few hundred bucks for rent for the first month and some food while I find a job? Because I'm moving out and I've got a, a room that's going to cost me 50 bucks a week. Rah, 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 rah. Fine, take the first hit. After that, you're starting. It's your beginning. It's the beginning of carving your place out of the world. And if you're getting money on a regular basis, in this case, five to 700 bucks a month from your family, that's an inhibitor. Because what that does is that makes you comfortable. Now, what he was saying in his, in his letter to me, how utterly to soul-destroying it is to lie in bed wondering how you're going to pay the bills. 
I want my boy to appreciate things and not have to have to go to bed hungry. That's uh, they're two things in in the opposite. To appreciate things, you have to go to bed hungry. Listen, there was a few weeks in Cairns where we lived on instant noodles, fifty cent packs, twenty cent packs of instant noodles. That's what I was eating. Thank God I was trading up on the Tully River. The I could go. I could get the lunch, the cooked lunch that was served to the customers. It was sausages and hamburgers and steaks and oh my God, <laughs> fucking save me! Because apart from that, it was two minute noodles. Yeah, two minute noodles with those horrible flavorings. Ah, and rice. So much rice. I mean, just rice, soy sauce and rice. That was it. How utterly, so he writes, how utterly soul-destroying this is to lie in bed wondering how you're going to pay the bills. It's not soul-destroying. It's not soul-destroying. And I remember the part in my book when I got to Sydney, I'd ridden across Australia on my motorbike to be with the girl of my dreams. I got to Sydney and she dumped me. She didn't even, have, she didn't even dump me. She non-dumped me. I stayed with her for three days, lying in the same bed, not touching each other. Fucking three days, I put up with it. God, hope dies hard. Hope dies hard, but eventually it dies. Yeah, loaded up my bike while they were away at work. The whole house was gone, yeah? And it wasn't just her in the house. It was like three or four other people. All of them knew what a loser I was in that situation. Oh, God, how horrible. Quiet, cat. Loaded up my bike. You've read the book, you know what I'm talking about. Motored off. I didn't even have a destination. I got to the end of the road and I didn't know whether to turn left or right. I think I turned right. Went down towards King's Cross. Went to a backpacker hostel. Got a room by myself. I think it was $25 a night. I didn't have that much money. Brown carpets on the... The whole room was brown. Brown bread spread. Brown carpet. Brown fucking wallpaper. It was seriously... It was all brown. It was literally all brown. That's what the thing... The thing that if I look at it in my mind's eye... It was also a fire trap, by the way. But the thing that I think that really strikes with me was the brown room. And it was the first night. And it was a Friday night. So King's Cross, which is the party... Well, back then, the party area of... Uh, literally, just full of strip clubs and all the rest. But it was the strip. The strip of Sydney. Starting up... I went down and I got some takeaway food. And I got a six-pack of beer. And I just sat up in that room. I didn't go out that night. Stared at the, the TV didn't work properly. I just listened to the sounds of the, the red light district going on around me. Bashing, crashing, crying, wailing, moaning. And I said to myself, doesn't get lower than this, man. Doesn't get lower than this. Doesn't get lower than this. It's got to be upward projection from here. If you want to know more, buy my book, Pushing Rubber Downhill. Read it. Read how I got myself out of it. The thing is, it's not... It's not, soul, it's not utterly soul-destroying to lie in bed wondering how you're going to pay the bills. Or in my case, lie in bed wondering where am I going to find a place to live? What am I going to do for a job? Let alone pay bills. I didn't have any, I didn't. I was before the bill point. I didn't have bills. <laughs> I would have been happy with bills. Bills would have been blissful. Bills would have, mean, would have meant I had a roof over my head. Probably sharing a house with other people, so I had maybe some friends. Yeah? And I was out there 
at their work in a job. If you've got bills coming in, <laughs> something's going on. Yeah, I had nothing going on. Nothing. I had nothing going on. And I was forced to get out of that room and get out and hustle. I had to hustle. I didn't have any other options. I had to hustle. Otherwise, my money would have steadily dwindled away. Because I had enough. When I got to Sydney and she dumped me and I realized, okay, this was it. I had enough money to do one of two things. I had enough money to stay in Sydney and build up something. Or I had enough money to get back to Perth. That was it. And at Perth, it would have been from zero. So I went, fuck it. I'm in Sydney. I'm not going to go back to Perth after, after three days. This is ridiculous. I'm going to give it a shot. I'm going to see what happens. I didn't have a job uh, when I was at school. A lot of my friends did. I didn't. And the reason was because my parents divorced and I was living with my mother and she was technically a single mother, and this is back in the early 80s, I could technically, I was eligible for something called Study, so for students who were disadvantaged. And it was $50 a week, five and a half grand a year. And this is the only time in my life that I've ever taken social security. It's very interesting. And I got that for year 11 and 12. So $50 a week, year 11 and 12. That was, that was good money. I think, um, I think that would have been the equivalent if I'd got a job pumping gas down at the service station. That was probably the equivalent of 10 hours pumping gas. You probably got five bucks an hour pumping gas. So 50 bucks a week was good. With 50 bucks a week, I could hang out with my friends. If I wanted to go to a concert, I could go to a concert. It went into my bank account every week. Every week it went into my bank account. Uh, my best mate at school, Brian, and he pumped gas. I think Andrew cleaned a, a gym or something. Ivan was doing something as well. I can't remember what he would job had. Ross was working at a supermarket down at Coles. These are all my gang that I hang out with. I was the only one who didn't have... A part-time job after school because I had this off study money coming in so why would I go and get a part-time job and do you see do you see the problem that happened here so all my peers all my all of my group that I was hanging out with while we we're at school they were getting experience in the in the workplace they were getting experience out there doing stuff so that when we finished school date they were already ahead of me they already had developed some of those skills that you need in the workplace, like turning up on time, getting on with people, doing, doing, doing what's required of you. These are, these are all skills that need to be learned. And I had to start from scratch when I left school at the age of uh, oh, 17. That's when I finished school. That's, that's the age you finish school in Australia, the year you turn 17. Um, that... $50 a week I study that I got for those two years, that meant I wasn't hungry. I was comfortable. I didn't have to go out and push myself, so I didn't. And the end result was I missed out. It was bad for me. It was bad for me getting that $50 a week. But happily enough, I learned the lesson from it. I saw what happened. I recognized, even at that young age, I, 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 was, I was clued up enough to be able to put two and two together and work it out for myself. And so I've, 
in my adult life, I've never taken any social security or welfare. I've never been on unemployment benefits. And I've had periods without a job. Like, technically, when I quit my job in Sydney and moved to Cairns, it took me, there was a few months there, I could have gone on unemployment benefits. And I would have had mates that would work a summer season and then go to the winter season, but in, in between would take the dole, which is unemployment benefits in Australia. But I never took it. I never even applied. I didn't set foot in a CES, Commonwealth Employment Service was back then. I don't know what it is now, but it was CES back then. I never stepped foot in a CES office. Didn't do it. And I could have, it was, uh, it was, it probably, going up to Cairns might have, might have made, it would have made things definitely a lot easier. And that's the problem. It would have made it a lot easier. So I consciously, as an adult, I saw what happened when I was a kid, a teenager with Ofstudy, and I was like, nah. Nah, you can't be comfortable. You just can't be comfortable. Because if you're comfortable, well, why do you need to get out of bed in the morning? You don't. So he, this guy wants his, his son to learn to appreciate things. You don't learn to appreciate that things unless you, unless you go to bed hungry. Unless you have the drive. It's really, really, really important. I just... Look, if I, if I look back... If I look back, I'd probably say that this was one, one of the most important lessons. One of the most important lessons that, that you can learn from that time. Now, there's an, there was another comment that I had in the last week or so. I'm just trying to find it now because I've just thought of it now. Um, I should be able to find it soon. Okay, here we go. This was from a mega man on He Gets It that I did uh, about a week ago. Yeah, a week ago. Um, just let me quote. When I first started to seriously think about girls, I was the inexperienced idiot who knew absolutely nothing about how to relate to the opposite sex. Uh, when you're a pudgy, inexperienced young man making his first ever approach to what seems like a nice young girl and you get humiliated in front of everybody for your audacity then that's enough to shut down most guys for a while. When everybody inadvertently lies to you about what girls want and you believe it, and then you get repeatedly shot down in flames, you just give up. That was me. I gave up and never approached another lady for all of my 20s. With my confidence destroyed, I concentrated on school first and then career. As I was approaching the third decade of my life, a friend got me into weightlifting, and while I was not fat, I couldn't be called fit either. Anyway, through weightlifting, a transformation came over me. As women started to look at me, my confidence levels rose to the point where I once again started asking women to go out. At a Corvette, and women started throwing themselves at me. Through a sometimes still painful process, I learned how to treat women the way they like and want to be treated. The piece de resistance came when one young lady told me that she loved watching my muzzles as we screwed. I eventually met a young lady who tried so very hard to show me what a good wife she would make, and of course I took her up on the offer. After many, many years, we're still happily married, and it looks like it will last the end of our days. You know that you still have it when your woman rips your clothes off and drags you into bed. Now, I'm getting to the point now, and it's, I've read all this because it's important to, be, to the build-up. And this is, my, this is the important um, paragraph. I think I'm at the point where I get it, but it was not always like that. The journey was hard, very hard, and I nearly gave up for good. 
The journey was hard, very hard. And look where he is now. He's at the point where he gets it. In a great marriage, which he got because the journey was hard and he learned the lessons. The reason that this guy wants to give the money to his son is because he wants to protect the son from failing. Let's go back to that quote. The journey was hard, very hard, and I nearly gave up for good. There's that risk. The father who wrote to me doesn't want his son to be in that situation where he gives up and he fails. And the father's trying to protect his son, but the father's also trying to protect himself. The father doesn't want to be in that situation where his son fails and gives up for good, whatever that may mean. And so by attempting to protect the son, by providing him with money, what the father's doing is actually attempting to protect himself. And ultimately, it's a selfish desire. You don't want to feel pain based on the mistakes that your children may or may not do. And we only learn from mistakes. My father fucked up in many ways. He didn't teach me how to fight as a kid. Big mistake. He didn't teach me anything about chicks because he probably, I don't think he knew. Um, He didn't give me any guidance through school or after school about what I could do career-wise. It was just, there was nothing. Absolutely nothing at all. And not because he didn't, there wasn't the capacity there. He didn't enter his mind to to help me in that way and didn't enter my mind to ask. It just was like, it was like, it was like the guys in the poverty village. Just didn't happen. I don't, I don't blame him for it. It's where he was at as a person. That, that, that's the reality. That's what we're dealt with. But the, the thing that he did give me was he never stood in my way. He never gave me money. And he never, never tried to stop me from doing shit. So when I said, when I announced that I was leaving Perth, giving up my apartment that I had, giving up my job, giving up my band giving up the circle of friends that I have, the life that I created as a 23-year-old, a lot of hard work had got into it, and I was just going to sell everything, get rid of the lot, and jump on a bike with everything that I owned and a motorbike and travel across Australia chasing a chick, hot as she was. My dad didn't even blink. And after years afterwards, I was like, why, why didn't you try and stop me? And my dad said, what the hell would I have said? What the hell would I, could I have said to, to, to stop you? And he was right. But he didn't stand in my way. And when I got over there, I phoned him a few times. And he was happy that I was safe. Because obviously he was worried. But he never offered me money. And he never asked me if I needed money. Because he knew. He knew. Because as a young man, my father moved from Sydney to Perth. Back in the late 60s. At about the age, pretty close to the age that I went the other way. And he knew. He knew what it meant to have to re-establish yourself. And to make, make a man of yourself. Everything that I write is about making a man of yourself as regards to masculinity. You've got to carve, literally carve your place out of the world. 
By doing so, you carve out who you are as a man. You're not ever going to do that if someone's giving you a monthly stipend just for the purpose of existing. That's why this whole basic income, what is it? The basic income they want to bring in is so, would be so, it'd be perfect for women. It'd be perfect for chicks. It wouldn't do a chicks any damage at all. More than that, so that they can damage themselves on their own. But for men, for boys, the basic universal, universal basic income, isn't it? UBI, universal basic income, that would be disastrous for men en masse. That would, like, that, that would finish off masculinity. The road has to be hard. There has to be some suffering. Like Jordan Peterson goes on about life is suffering, life is suffering. I don't agree with him 100% on that. I don't. I think he's, he's read too much Jung and, 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 and got a bit too much into the Bible for my liking. Um, but, but mostly too much Jung. Life is not suffering, but we do need suffering as men in order to progress. That's what we need. So if you're just giving your son a monthly stipend, that's working against that. And if you're worried about your son not making it, I think every father worries about that. And there are lots of sons out there that don't make it for whatever reason. Maybe they become a drug addict or an alcoholic. Maybe they're a disaster in their career. Maybe they top themselves. Maybe they marry a terrible woman and it's just, it's just one disaster or another. Let them go. It's their life now. You gave them as much it's a job as a father. Give them as many tools as they can have, as many quivers in their bow as they can possibly have, then send them out. And then it's up to them, and that's the whole point. It's up to them. Out you go, son. And if he does it, fucking fantastic. And if he doesn't, you have you just have you that's what you have to deal with. That's part of the risks of having kids. Bringing kids into the world. It's not risk-free. You can't protect your own feelings all of the time. And by attempting to give you... By subsidising your son's existence, you're trying to protect your own feelings, basically. And it's very selfish. And it does it ends up doing the son damage. Because... Because he'll be... He'll be he won't be a man. He'll be subsidised. A man isn't subsidised. Come on. A man is not subsidised. Think of Clint Eastwood or Steve McQueen or any of the guys, the decent actors back in the 60s and 70s. Charles Bronson, Death Wish. Are they getting a monthly step in from their dad? Come on. Please. Please. What about, um, what about Johnny Depp in Dead Man? Remember that movie, Dead Man with Johnny Depp? Where he goes, he's out in the West the 19th century, and he goes out for a job offer, and he spends all his money to get there, and when he gets there, there's no job, but he has no money to get back. It was a one-way ticket. Kind of similar, similar to my trip to Uganda on a one-way ticket. Yeah? And so he has to, he has to, he has to scrounge around. He has to, and he ends up going all loopy and, and becoming the dead man. So when you look at it, on the surface, it didn't work out. 
Ultimately, guys, but ultimately, I'll get to the example of dead man, that sounds not great. Yeah, it's, there's no guarantees. There's no guarantees. It could be like Johnny Depp and dead man. There's no guarantees. There's no guarantees even when you do make it. You can still fall and fail. Look at the Australian cricket team right now. Captain Steve Smith and Vice-Captain David Warner, both banned for a year. David Warner, never eligible to be captain again. Steve Smith, not eligible to be captain of the Australian cricket team until 2020. All for one, for one episode. They, these guys were literally, I can't say untouchable because the events have proved that otherwise, but they were... These guys, these guys were the the captain of the Australian cricket team is more important than the Prime Minister of Australia. These guys will never live this down. And David Warner was was stacking shelves in a supermarket for ten bucks an hour. As an adult, he came. He, there's a guy who came from poverty, earning millions of dollars a year, and now he's blown it. It's all gone. It's gone. He's fucked. I'd be worried. I'd be worried for his mental health right now. There's no guarantees in life. You could fail from the beginning, like Johnny Depp in Dead Man, or you could make it huge and then and then fuck it up. And they fucked it up and throw it all away. And so you think, what's the point? And the point is, and this is this is where I'll end the podcast. The point is, we're here to learn, as as individual beings. We're not we're not we don't come into this world to like eat eat packets of chips and drink beer in front of the TV. I truly believe, and this is just me personally, but I truly believe that we're on the earth as individuals, unique individuals, to grow, to get from point A to point B, to jump up, so that when we die, we are more than what we were than when we were born. So the more hardships you face, so look at David Warner and Steve Smith right now. You could look at it, they've lost everything. Or, because of their own actions, they now have more opportunities to learn more lessons and to grow as individual beings. And you can look at the money they've lost and blah, 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 blah. But we don't take any money with us when we die. You don't take any material items with you when you die. That's a fact. We know that. But we don't know whether or not we take with us when we die, who we are. No one can talk to us about that. Maybe we die and it's nothing, or maybe we die and it's something else. And, and who, who you are when you die, what you've developed as yourself as an individual, the choices that you've made, how you've lived your life, how you've treated other people. And you get that way by your struggles, by your suffering, by your hardships, by making choices every day, by following through, by taking risks. These things are what? These things, these things are the essence of life itself. And if you're trying to give, you want to give your, your son a monthly stipend, you're, you're literally getting him to avoid life itself, why we're here. And maybe that's the lesson the son has to learn. Maybe the lesson the son has to learn is to refuse it and go, no. And that was the key point of my book. The key point of my book was when I approached my father for help because I was in Uganda, fired from my job, no ticket out, and I contacted my father and I said, I need some help to get out of this situation. And he came back with, 
one-way ticket back to Australia. That's what I'll give you. And I didn't want to go back to Australia. I wanted to continue the adventure. And so I rejected the offer. I rejected the offer. I rejected the offer and that that's the, that's the crux of what the book's about. Standing on your own two feet. Men stand on their own two feet. That's what being a man's about, ultimately. Ultimately, that's what being a man, a man is all about. Is standing on your own two feet. And then what's really about being a man is then not only just standing on your own two feet, but just supporting a family, providing for a family, bringing up your children, and bringing up your children so that they can stand on their own two feet as well. That's why we're here, ladies and gentlemen. That's why we're here. This is a really important topic because it covers so many things. It covers so many things. All right. I think I've said enough on it. I could go on more, but, but that's it. That's it in a nutshell. That's it in a nutshell. I hope you take away something from this. Shout out to Captain Capitalism who sponsors my podcast. Hey, Cappy. You can check him. You can find him at captaincapitalism.blogspot.com. He has several books out on the questions of finance and also making your, your path in life as a man. Check them out. Titles such as Reconnaissance Man, Bachelor Pad Economics, Curse of the High IQ, Black Man's Guide Out of Poverty, Worthless. He has a consultancy business, Arsehole Consulting, where I've been... This, this, uh, this initial question came came in came from and uh, he has two podcasts a week as well so check out the good cappy uh, if you like this podcast subscribe to the podcast and spread it around to your friends link it around let's get some more people listening if you think it's valuable let's get some more people listening uh, subscribe to my uh, website pushingrubberdownhill.com you can purchase my books um, that's the way you can support me um, I do a podcast every week and once a month a joint podcast with the great one from the Cynical Libertarian Society called the Crazy Pole Podcast. So make sure you check out those as well. Uh, been great talking to you. Don't you go changing. And I'll talk to you. Don't you go changing. I meant that like stay with me people. But feel free to change yourself. And I'll see you, talk to you next week. Ciao.